This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye-bye-bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow from the London market close to the US market action. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5 p.m. in the City of London. Coming up on the programme, central bank communication or maybe confusing communication dominating the markets in the last 24 hours. A Governor Carney U-turn, some ECB pushback and uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen's comment that some asset values look a little frothy. All of that coming up over the next 60 minutes. We begin with our top story. Governor Mark Carney saying the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee may need to begin raising interest rates soon. Some removal of monetary policy stimulus is likely to become necessary if that trade-off that the MPC faces continues to lessen. So you can see the chart and you can, you can plot your view on where it's headed because as it lessens, the policy decision becomes more uh, conventional. That was Governor Carney in prepared introductory remarks at the European Central Bank Forum this morning in Sintra, Portugal. The pound rising through 129 against the dollar after those remarks. The comments mark a huge shift, I've got to say, from what we heard from the governor just last week. Just last week, a big shift. Joining me now to discuss Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist. Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Alistair, last week, June 20th, Governor Carney says inflation pressures subdued. It is not the time for a rate hike. Governor Carney today, maybe the time is coming soon where the removal of BOE stimulus might be necessary. Some removal of Bank of England stimulus might be necessary. Make sense of this for me. What's changed in a week? <laughs> um, well, if it was a political scene, I could say uh, quite a lot. But I, I think as far as the, the stance has come, it, there's been a lot of conversation about this. And there's been, uh, as much as anything else, a bit of a, a worry as far as the, the, the markets are concerned about the uh, divergence of opinion of the MPC voting members um, and how there was a real lack of clarity as far as the, a unified opinion is concerned. They're all entitled to their own opinion, of course. But uh, it didn't sound like a, it, it was necessary that they were singing from the same hymn sheet. And I think it looks like he has uh, realigned himself a little bit. As far as fundamentals are concerned, the landscape doesn't look that much different than it did this time last week. Richard Jones, 2014, June, he delivers a speech at Mansion House about raising interest rates. Then a couple of weeks later, he walks it back. You get a point if you remember what he was called by an MP two weeks after the comments. An unreliable boyfriend, John. Okay, you get a bonus point if you remember the name of the MP. Uh, I'm going to have to say that I'm, I guess I'm only going to be stuck on one on one. <laughs> Treasury Select Committee. It was Treasury Select Committee member Pat McFadden. <laughs> yes, yes, of course it was. Well, you know, the thing to remember is is that uh, yesterday the Bank of England already announced a bit of uh, uh, removal of policy accommodation through the through the Financial Policy Committee and the raising the countercyclical capital buffers. So, so they're already on the way to doing something. And my my analysis of that yesterday was that that probably makes a move by the MPC in the near term less likely. 
And if you if you if you sort of read in depth what Carney said today, what he is saying is is very conditional. There's some big ifs involved here. He said um, he will look at three factors to inform his decision about the need to start raising rates. The extent to which weaker consumption growth is offset by other areas of demand, such as business investment, that's a big if. Wages and labor unit costs, which are, which are not keeping pa- um, pace with inflation. So un- until that shifts, which is another big if, it doesn't look like they're going to raise rates. And then the last one, which I think is the biggest if of all, is broadly how the economy reacts to Brexit. Now, we're not really seeing the full impact of how the economy reacts to Brexit. And I think within the next six months, we're probably not going to see the full, the full impact. So it strikes me that what the Bank of England is doing, Mark Carney today, Andy Haldane last week, and it seems like it's more of a concerted effort. So I think Al is, is absolutely right to say that they're starting to sing from the same hymn sheet. They're trying to introduce a little bit more two-way risk into the market. And if you look at the, if you look at the reaction in the U.K. rates this afternoon, you look at reaction in the pound, they have introduced that two-way risk. Now, what I would say is that we've actually paired some of the initial knee-jerk reaction. We've paired about 30% of it in the rates move. And in the pound, we couldn't get above back above 130, and now it looks like the pound is probably looking to drop down below 129 against the dollar again. So, yes, short-term reactions, some nuanced shifts, but I don't think it's a massive game-changer, John. Okay, then let's use this as the framework for our thinking over the next couple of minutes. Alistair McKay, if they want to introduce some two-way risk, Why? Well, markets, uh, you know, they, they don't want foregone conclusions and, and, and front-running a, a phrase we don't like to use it too often in the city, but they don't want that sort of mindset to um, effectively, uh, you know, uh, create foregone conclusions and their self-fulfilling prophecies. That's, that's never a good template to find yourself stuck upon, uh, and I think that's certainly part of their thinking. I think you've both been too kind to go at Garney. Um, Richard Jones, it's a week since he said no. So why a week later is he even putting this on the table? Well, you know, you could say that he's still not, he's not committed to actually raising rates. With that conditionality that he pointed out that I just highlighted, he could sit there and say, look, it's not inconsistent with what he said last week. Last week he said it's not quite the time yet to raise rates. And he he's not knows how now. markets work, I think, Richard. I think what Come they are on. trying to do and, and I'm not sure how successful they'll be in doing this, but they're actually trying to cushion some of the downside in the pound. And in the short term, I think it's working okay. But in the long term, I think they know that they're fighting a pretty tough battle there. Um, and even if they do raise rates, I do not think that they can, they can actually stem the downward pressure that the pound could face if the Brexit negotiations are as contentious as I think a lot of people are thinking they will be. Um, but I think I think, realistically, you have to look beyond the headlines and, and drill deep into what each of these central bankers are saying. And I know yeah. we're going to speak about Mario Draghi. Oh, we're going to have a good time segment. with that. Right. And, and there's, a lot to, there's a lot to sort of unpick there. But I think what Carney is doing is they're, they're trying to buy themselves time. They're trying to keep their options as open as they can. But they can't get away from the fact that, that, that households are feeling the pinch from negative real wages. Businesses are also uncertain. And a lot of this is due to the fact that Brexit is still such an unknown. Well, Al, I wonder... Um... Richard touched on it. Managing the FX channel is one thing. 
But putting it together with the move on the Financial Policy Committee just yesterday to bring up the counter-cyclical capital buffer, is that maybe the story here, that the two-way risk is not for market participants, that the two-way risk may well be for the consumer? That's certainly one way of looking at it. I, I think that a recalibration of the FX markets is, is needed because, let's face it, if we start to see Brexit negotiations hit some difficult times, and I think quite a lot of the city fears that that could well be the case, yeah. you know, we, we, we worry about where, where sterling strength will will migrate to in short and medium term. And we're already at fairly low levels in that regard, say, against cable. And I think that some sort of, you know, rebalancing ahead of when negotiations really start and when we start to get some some real, you know, decisions materializing from those Brexit negotiations is possibly part of their thinking, too. Alison McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth, alongside Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist at Bloomberg. For the City of London, then, we continue the conversation in the FX market. It is a stronger pound story, up by almost one full percent against the dollar at 129.40. That stronger pound story still ahead on the cable. It talks central banking. President Draghi, maybe he just got some evidence that his call for prudence in withdrawing European Central Bank stimulus applies to his words too. We'll get to that in just a moment. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Hello, hello to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow from the London market close to the US market action. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5.10pm in the City of London. What a 24 hours it's been for European markets. The euro and bond yield surging yesterday after the ECB president said that the reflation of the eurozone economy creates some room to pull back unconventional measures without tightening the stance. That was the read of the market, buy the euro, sell bonds. Then officials said that President Draghi's speech at the ECB forum in Sintra, Portugal, was intended to strike a balance between recognising the net currency's block's economic strength and warning that monetary support is still needed. Apparently, in the eyes of people familiar with the ECB's thinking, the markets misjudged the speech. Well, here's the comments from President Draghi himself just yesterday. Take a listen. As uh the economy continues to recover, a constant policy stance will become more accommodative. And the central bank can accompany the recovery by adjusting the parameters of its policy instruments, not in order to tighten the policy stance, but to keep it broadly unchanged. Let's bring in a team, Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist at Bloomberg, Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Richard Jones, did the market misjudge the speech? Well, when yesterday when the speech came out, I, w- I posted on the, the Markets Live blog on the Bloomberg Terminal that, look, what he's saying is, is completely consistent with what he's been saying for the past few months, and, and most notably what he said at the ECB press conference in Estonia earlier this month. There was, there was slight nuance shifts here. There was uh, a little bit more context, but it wasn't anything earth-shatteringly new from the president. Um, and the market reacted the way it reacted, um, and it seemed to me like it might have been a little bit overdone, um, especially, especially in, the, in the rate side. Yeah. Because I think the read was that, oh, this is a big shift here. But if you look at, you know, without getting too inside baseball and nerdy about the short end of the money market curve. Go for it, go for it. 
there really wasn't as big a reaction this time around as what we saw in March. With the implied yields on the Euribor strip, which is, which is a very good gauge of, of short rate, uh, short, uh, short-term expectations uh, of, of the rates market, really didn't make as, the, the kind of move that we saw three months ago. So I yeah. was sort of saying, like, okay, fair enough. There's more nuance, there's more context, uh, but he's not really changed the messaging at all. And, and, and the market reaction to me was not as big as it was three months ago. And then lo and behold, we had Constancio come out, the vice president this morning, saying you know, that, that, um, yeah. that Draghi's speech yesterday was totally in line with recent Eastern <laughs> policy. The market reactions are not understandable. Then a further denial later in the morning, and, and sort of a lot of the move that we saw yesterday, especially in the rate space, got unwound. So it's, 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 a, it's a case of um, maybe it's time of year. You know, summer markets are a bit thinner. And, and, yeah, maybe. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to rationalize it, but it struck me that the market reaction was, a, was outsized probably too much well, of a reaction. Well, let's, let's give Alistair McCaig the opportunity to weigh in. Al, I just wonder if this really underlines how difficult it's going to be for the ECB to pivot later this year, given that even a subtle change in language can bring about a huge move in markets. Fundamentally, he, he is migrating in a sizable way from the whatever-it-takes phraseology that we had to ultimately having to find himself into some sort of rate normalization. Um, and every time that there is a, a fresh speech or, or, or press conference and he uses any other phraseology than he's previously made, the markets get a little bit on the jittery side because they know fundamentally what will be materializing in due course. Yeah. And they are on tenterhooks. And, and I think, you know, Richard's right. It's the summer months. And, you know, I think volumes maybe don't fall away as much as they, they used to in the decades gone by. But nonetheless, markets aren't half as, uh, the volumes aren't half as much as they, uh, they normally are at the sort of peak times of the year. And these little nuanced shifts do, do make much more of a uh, inter interday moves. Who goes on holiday anymore? Honestly, really, <laughs> the time. Alice McKay, Director of Investment Management at Firm Wealth over in Zurich and out of the city of London. Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist at Bloomberg. I've got to say, Central Bank's been so kind to the cable with so much content. Next up, the Federal Reserve not sounding the alarm bell, but suddenly talking a lot more about rising asset prices. That's next. <laughs> This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon to the City of London. I can picture Richard Jones air drumming, if there's such a thing. <laughs> you are, aren't you? Um, uh, yeah, I'm afraid I'm fairly predictable on there that. There we go. Now. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are <laughs> listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. From the London market close to the US market action, let's get you up to speed on that action very quickly. The FTSE did close lower at the close uh, by 0.63%. Over in the continent, on the DAX in Frankfurt, Germany, a bit softer there too, down by 0.19%. In the United States, we bounced back quite significantly, up eight-tenths of 1% on the S&P 500 after the biggest one-day loss since May 17th of this year, the Dow up by 0.77% on the session so far. The story, though, in the US, Fed Chair Janet Yellen, Vice Chair Stanley Fisher, 
and San Francisco Fed President John Williams all acknowledging that valuations in equities and other asset markets had risen noticeably in recent weeks. The debate over US monetary policy has been fixated for months on whether policymakers should take their signal from falling unemployment, which has boosted the case for rate hikes, or sluggish inflation, which has uh, counselled patience. US equities falling the most in six weeks after Yellen answered some audience questions at an event in London describing asset valuations as somewhat rich. Asset valuations are somewhat rich if you use some traditional metrics like price earnings ratios, but um, I wouldn't try to comment on appropriate valuations and those ratios what to depend on uh, long-term interest rates. Um, and, you know, of course, there's uncertainty about that. So, um, yes, by standard metrics, some, some asset valuations look high, but um, there's no certainty about that. Joining us now. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist at Bloomberg. Alison McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Al, do we care if the Fed chair thinks asset valuations are somewhat rich? The statement itself falls into the night follows day type category, as far as I'm concerned. You could have said that for quite some considerable time. I think what really carries the weight here is who's saying it. Um, And I think maybe um, I think I'd be more inclined to say um, uh, if uh, if you use uh, um, earnings ratios uh, in specifically to what markets are expecting the U.S., economic and business landscape to look like and have been factoring in of late. Um, I think that would be obviously a step too far as far as she's concerned. But I think that's maybe more the, the area of fear as far as the market frothiness is concerned for me. What does it say, Richard Jones, about the reaction function at the Fed and what they are actually focused on, whether it is the dual mandate or whether financial stability has become that unofficial third side of the mandate? Well, let me just say this, that uh, I'm going to show my age here, but uh, and this might be something that Al remembers, but this, this all harkens back to Alan Greenspan, irrational exuberance December 5th, uh, over 20 96. years ago. Um, now, I think you're right to say that, you know, for, for the past two or three years, John, you and I have talked about the disconnect between the Fed summary of economic projections, their dots, versus what the market's pricing. And, and the, the, the market has never priced as much as what the Fed has said they were going to do. The market for most of this period has been right, and we yeah. still have that disconnect. What I think is interesting now, though, is that they seem to be looking at, at, the, at asset prices, and maybe we talk about equities specifically, and the fact that, the, that you've got three Fed speakers talking about it in a very short space of time yeah. is something that maybe does point to an, an unofficial third, um, so, third bit of their mandate. And, and you know what? I, I'm not sure how this resolves itself. The, the sort of typical stuff that we're looking at, so the, the employment and inflation side, um, it, it, we, know, we know what the, what, what the problems are there. Employment's taken yeah. along nicely. Inflation is not as high as it should be. I, I'm not quite sure that a lot of us have got our heads around what this third, the third sort of spoke of their mandate is so Rich, and what it means love, in terms of the bigger picture. I love that you bring up the Greenspan speech, the challenge of central banking in a democratic society in, in 1996, and everyone ran away with the irrational exuberance line that he brought up. And of course, he was early to the party himself, several years yeah. early, in fact. And it just goes to show how the Fed can get things so wrong. So I played the game with you a little bit earlier, Rich, and I'm going to play the game with Alistair McCaig. Alan, I'm going to read you a quote, and you can tell me who said these following words. All that said, 
Given the fundamental factors in place that should support the demand for housing, we believe the effect of the troubles in the subprime sector on the broader housing market will likely be limited, and we do not expect significant spillovers from the subprime market to the rest of the economy or to the financial system. You get a point for naming who that was. Ooh, uh, I'm pretty sure this isn't correct, but I'll go Ben Bernanke. I'm, I, you I don't are. Know. You are correct. It is Ben Bernanke. <laughs> um, you get a bonus point for naming the year. 2006. Wrong by a year, 2007. May 17th, 17th, 2007. And that's why I'm so pleased, Rich, that you brought this up, because it just goes to show how conditioned, and Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock pretty much said this to me today, that the Fed is now very conditioned by that, and by that speech almost, that they've got to be careful. They've got to say that valuations look somewhat rich. They've got to hedge it. As you said, they've got to introduce a little bit of two-way risk as well. Do you think that's what's happening here with the Fed chair, that she's conscious of, of years gone by? Well, think about it too, right? What, you know, I don't care what anybody says. Any Fed chair is always, one of the things they're going to be concerned about is um, what, what they're going to be remembered for, you know, and 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 I think they're all terrified of having their own uh, Jean-Claude Trichet moment, you know, maybe hiking rates at absolutely the wrong time, something like this where a, a quote comes back and, and, and looks just unbelievably wrong, you know, 10 yeah. years later. So, yeah, I agree. I think that that, that plays into this, and they're looking at, at, at uh, share valuations. They're nervous about it, and so they want to raise... Um, I think some uh, some some risk about it, or to, or to have a, a view that you know they actually are aware of it, rather than have something like this come back to bite them later on. I I, I don't think you can underestimate that. Hey, Rich, you're sticking with us. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist at Bloomberg, alongside Alistair McKay, director of investment management at Fern Wealth. Coming up next on the cable, stress test. They're stressful. And they're expensive to conduct. We're going to talk to a company that may have a solution for that. That's coming up next. For the City of London, you are listening to The Cable. You are listening, of course, to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio from the London market close to the US market action. It's just gone 5.30 p.m. in London. Let's get you up to speed on that market action, shall we? At the close, the FTSE 100 down by 0.63%. Over in Frankfurt, Germany, the DAX softer by 0.19%. In the United States, a really decent session after yesterday's sell-off. The biggest one-day drop on the S&P 500 since May 17th. The following day, we're up eight tenths of one percent on the benchmark here in the U.S., and the Dow is up by just over seven tenths of one percent in the FX market. Sterling strength—a big story for what a one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh straight day. The pound is higher at one twenty-nine thirty-four, up nine tenths of one percent, following some pretty hawkish comments from Governor Carney in Portugal, Sintra, at the ECB forum. So that's the story in the FX market. The story in the bond market for you: Treasuries yields that little bit higher by a single basis point at 221 on the US 10-year. And the gilt market in the United Kingdom, gilt yields also higher by about six basis points. We now trade at 1.154%. That's the story cross-asset in the markets. Let's get you up to speed on what's coming up in the United States today. 
Part two of the Fed's annual stress test on banks, the Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review, or CCAR, tests how the 34 largest banks perform under stress scenarios posed in part one of the stress test if they issue share buybacks and dividends. This test determines whether banks win Fed approval of increases in their capital plans within minutes of part two and that release. Banks then release their capital plans. What they plan to do as far as buybacks and dividends are concerned. Joining me now to discuss I'm really pleased to say is Ala Gill, the founder and CEO of Stratarix and former head of investment banking strategy at Goldman Sachs, who has developed what they call a revolutionary software to help banks stress test themselves and do so on an ongoing basis. Ala, great to have you with us on the program. Hello. Just talk me through the problem, the magnitude of it, and how your company Stratarix is trying to address it. Uh, the problem is usually that uh, banks uh, have to project their balance sheet and capital ratios on Federal Reserve provided scenarios, as well as on their own idiosyncratic scenarios. And usually they do this exercise only on a few scenarios, yeah. stress scenarios, while what uh, we are doing, we are helping them to analyze uh, their balance sheet and capital ratios on thousands of the scenarios. Yeah. Only some of them will be stressful. So this helps them to answer the question whether they could have missed something, whether yeah. that, you know, like there is some combination of events that wasn't captured in those few scenarios that they have looked at. Well, talk to me about cost. How expensive is this to uh, to address? And, and what kind of issues do the banks have to cover it? Because we know that banks have spent an absolute fortune over the last couple of years to try and comply with this kind of issue. Do you save these banks a significant amount of money? Do they already have a situation where much of their costs are already sunk, i.e. they've hired the people, they've done the work, it exists, the teams exist, and therefore it's done? Or can you actually do something that makes this process a lot more cost efficient for some of the big banks on Wall Street? This is exactly the case. We make this process a lot more efficient for the largest banks on Wall Street, but also for smaller players as well as for uh, non-banking institutions. Everybody needs to know what is facing them. Everybody needs to know what can be wrong. And you're absolutely right that U.S. banks have spent tremendous amount of money in the past few years. And now there is a lot of pressures from everybody to reduce these costs. And we think that now it's the perfect time. The machinery has been built. The data yeah. has been gathered, but the bleeding should stop. And instead of keep spending this tremendous amount of money, financial institutions need to start business as usual stress testing, yeah. something that much more aligned with their regular business operations. Um, I wonder if the problem for the banks is going away, though. There's a lot of discussions about changes to regulatory regimes, particularly here in the United States, and maybe a softer touch on regulation as well. Is this problem going to exist for banks on Wall Street for a significant amount of time? Uh, it is definitely uh, a, a, a lot of changes are in the air and a lot of people are talking about banks being allowed to return um, a large amount of capital back to the shareholders. But we think that as much as stress testing should become a more day-to-day um, uh, 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 management process, it is yeah. still very critical to remain 
uh, to, to do idiosyncratic stress testing. I just want to remind you that back before the financial crisis, people uh, had uh, uh, the lowest amount of capital because there were few years of safety. Yeah. And we are now in the same situation. There were few years of safety. Everybody has plenty of capital now, but the next crisis might be just around the corner. So nobody should forget about that and get careless about stress testing and, uh, and capital. Gail, um, some competition from the likes of BlackRock and Moody's as well that try and help with these kind of things too. Um, what sets you apart from the pack? Uh, uh, all, all, all of the providers of stress scenarios yeah. usually do it bottom-up, which means they tell the institutions, give us your scenarios or here are the few scenarios that we can give you. What we give the institutions, our product generates uh, thousands of these scenarios uh, the, uh, specific to the institution, their capital ratios are projected on these scenarios and the institution can select their own scenarios that are specifically adverse for them from different perspectives. Aligil, it's been fantastic to have you with us on the program to break that down. The founder and CEO of Straterix and the former head of investment banking strategy at Goldman Sachs on that development that they call a revolutionary software to help banks stress test themselves and do so on an ongoing basis. For those of you following the stress test in the United States, it's part two of the annual stress test on banks today. CCAR, of course, testing how the big banks in the United States, all 34 of them, will perform under the stress scenarios posed in part one of the stress test if they issue share buybacks and dividends. So essentially for the big investors out there, today's critical. You get to find out about the capital allocation, capital distribution plans that are big banks on Wall Street and whether they can introduce big buyback programs and dividends as well. So look out for that a little bit later in the day. We'll bring you full coverage right here on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg TV throughout tomorrow as well. To get you up to speed on the market action just very quickly, in London we did close lower then by six tenths of 1%. The DAX also softer by 0.19%. In the United States, big move lower yesterday, the biggest move since May 17th. Today, a big pop higher. The biggest move since, uh, let me bring it up on a terminal for you very quickly. To the upside, the biggest move since June 19th uh, by 8 cents of 1%. So about nine days. Decent session in the US. Decent session for risk. Bonds on offer, if you're looking at treasuries, yields up by a single basis point at 2.22%. In the FX market, some big moves, though, once again for sterling, for the euro. And I can tell you everything, with the exception of the Norwegian krona, is stronger against the dollar today. Euro dollar up by a third of 1%. Cable up by nine tenths of 1%. The pound today higher by nine tenths of 1% to 129.35. That's your story in the markets in the United States, then coming up next we talk healthcare senate majority leader mitch mcconnell scrambling to win enough gop votes on the troubled u.s healthcare bill it looks like the path to repealing obamacare just got a whole lot harder and it looks like tax reform maybe not a 2017 story anymore for the city of london you're listening to the cable this is bloomberg radio This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio from the London market close to the US market action. It has just gone 5.40 p.m. 
in the city, the story in the United States, healthcare reform hitting another hurdle. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell may have bought himself some time by delaying a vote on his embattled health care bill until mid-July. McConnell faces a difficult and narrow path in trying to deliver on seven years of promises to repeal Obamacare. Republican leaders plan to spend the next few days haggling over changes to the draft health care bill, which isn't even a week old. The goal is to reach a deal by Friday so the Congressional Budget Office can scrutinise it over the July 4th recess, Senators said. This morning I spoke with Michael Leavitt. He's the former U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary on Bloomberg Television about Mitch McConnell receiving the 50 votes he needs to pass the bill. I'm one who believes they'll ultimately get a bill. We don't know exactly what will be in it, but I think we're in a period of what has to be considered negotiation. Everyone looks to create a bit of leverage and uh, saying no is leverage at this moment. But they're creeping toward a very important deadline, which is September the 30th, when the vehicle that they're using legislatively, the reconciliation budget uh, vehicle, expires, uh, which means that at that point they have to go to 60 votes. And the Republicans face then a point in time where they have to go back into an election cycle, uh, having not accomplished what they said they would do. So I'm not at all surprised that Mitch McConnell doesn't have the votes right now. Uh, But we're in a period of negotiation, and I think over time they'll get there. We don't know exactly what will be in it. I think if we don't, we'll end up in a period where in order to do something, they'll have to seek a bipartisan bipartisan resolution. I think that's less appealing to Mitch McConnell and to the Republicans who have campaigned on the words repeal and replace. Uh, Once they abandon that, I think it uh, becomes a much more difficult mandate for them to have fulfilled. Joining us to discuss, Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, alongside Alison McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Firm Wealth. Al, to you quickly, base case tax reform when? Uh, uh, shifting ever further down the timeline. Uh, Mitch McConnell delays must be a headline that we've seen on far too many occasions over the last number of years, and this is another instance of it. Um, difficult to see when the, the, the Trump administration are going to be able to turn their attention to that properly. Rich? Well, definitely not 2017, it's looking like. And, and I think that is the key, is that, you know, rewind six months ago, and we all thought that there was going to be um, a, a strong fiscal package, a real, a real push from the, uh, from the Trump administration. And it's just been setback after setback after setback. So I think Al's right. It's, it's not a 2017 thing. It's a 2018 thing. And, and that is, I think, one of the things that has, has, has proved to, to drive Treasury yields lower, to drive the dollar lower. Um, and, and we go back to where we, we started at the, at the top of the hours. What does this mean for equities longer term? Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do think that six months ago, investors were a lot more optimistic about uh, Washington being able to get things done. And, and so far, uh, six months into the year, we haven't seen any of it really. Anyone care about this in the market out anymore? Are we immune to this, desensitized to some extent? Well, when it comes to the healthcare, I mean, I'm uh, rather than Zurich, I'm in Zug, which is just down the road from Zurich. Yeah. We're absolutely surrounded by biotechnology companies around here. Um, and I can assure you that they're quite focused on this and quite keen to see resolutions materializing. Um, but of the overall markets, I think there's just been a, a continuing disappointment uh, with the, the, the Trump administrations to get things done. 
And that's why we've seen all that money shifting across the Atlantic yeah. over into Europe and looking elsewhere. Well, I guess I should caveat that. Of course, people care. It's a fifth of the US economy and many people are dependent on the healthcare issue. I guess my broader question is what it means for tax reform. Have we kind of discounted this so much that it's no longer in the price? I think expectations have diminished so much that um, I think we'll be pleasantly surprised if anything were to materialise this year. Expectations are, as as, uh, as Richard was saying, 2018 or, or, or when. Yeah, Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Firm Wealth, alongside Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist. Joining me on the cable, we wrap up the day and look forward to the back half of the week. That's coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. My producer's screaming, go. No one wants to hear from me. They just want the song. Don't they? Come on. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio from the London market close to the US market action, 5.48pm in the City of London. I'll whip through things for you very quickly. If you're just tuning in, the FTSE closed lower by 0.63%. The DAX down by 0.19%. That's a European close. In the United States, really decent session. We erased much of the losses yesterday on the S&P 500. We're up 0.89%. The NASDAQ, the tech-heavy index in the US, up by 1.19%. The Dow up by 0.76%. In the FX market, weaker dollar story for another session, a second day this week. The pound higher by one full percentage point at 129.40, following some hawkish comments from Governor Carney. A sixth straight day of gains for Sterling, longest winning streak since November 4th, 2016. I love that you're still playing the tune as I do the market check. Um, in the bond market, it was just a little <laughs> bit higher. If you're looking at gilts, we're up about five, six basis points. I say a little. Maybe a lot. We're up at 1.154% on a UK 10-year. That's your market move. Coming up through the day, your highlights. The Federal Reserve set to announce the results of the second part of its annual bank stress test. They'll come at 9.30 p.m. London time, 40.30 local. Thursday, the UK Commons votes on Prime Minister Theresa May's government programme. May, of course, sought a deal with Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party to ensure she had enough votes in the chamber to win. Uh, late afternoon, in London, that will come. Uh, of course, there are your highlights for the next 24 hours or so to discuss and take a look at the UK very quickly. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist. Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Al, are we surprised that the Prime Minister has lasted as long as she had, a, a full 20 days? I must admit, I, I did think that uh, George Osborne's um, uh, statements on, on at least three occasions, I think it was on a, uh, on a Sunday political show in the UK that she was a dead man walking, uh, would come to fruition by now. Uh, so I'm surprised uh, that she's lasted this long. This is a tough deal to, to, to put in front of people um, a billion uh, pounds uh, going towards the DUP and, and Northern Ireland. Uh, more broadly, there's a lot of people who feel left out of this equation. There's a lot of chat as, as well going on about re, uh, reallocating funding towards uh, many of the public service sectors. We um, do feel that this could be a bit of a Pandora's box for the way that the, uh, the government's going to have to run things uh, for, for the you know, next number of years and be considerably less prudent and a little bit more um, uh, encouraged to open the, uh, the purse strings. Rich? Well, part of me thinks that, that Al's absolutely right, that I'm surprised that she lasted as long as she has. 
But then again, maybe that was just George Osborne with a with a touch of, of too much Schadenfreude, and maybe it just suits everybody in the Conservative Party to have her in place for for uh, a, a little bit longer, um, perhaps you know many months still. But I think I think I think. The, the uncertainty lingers, and it, it just seems to be fighting fires one after the other. And, you know, really, the Brexit negotiations have started, but they've only really just started. And that's going to, that plot is going to thicken. That's going to get a lot more interesting. That's going to get a lot more problematic, I think. So, you know, going forward, I don't know what the prognosis is, but, but it, it really does strike me that um, everything looks pretty cloudy, and, and it's hard to come to any sort of market conclusion about all of this other than to say that markets don't like uncertainty and we've got a lot of it in store for ourselves in the next couple of years. Well, Rich, we've got a ton of uncertainty, but bigger question, if you're in the market right now, let's say you're playing the FX market or you're exposed to FX risk and you're a big business, a big importer, a big exporter, wherever you sit on the debate and wherever your interest lies as you're looking at the currency market. I was told exclusively it was about politics now. But now the Bank of England's in the game in a way that I don't think many people thought they would be. We've got two-way risk from the BOE. You've got some messy politics as well. How difficult does the Sterling story get to anticipate from here? Well, the problem is the messy politics makes the the two-way risk maybe not quite as two-way as we thought. And that's to say that, you know, one a lot of the sort of conditionality that's into the Bank of England trying to maybe even just take back some of the accommodation that they that they enacted last summer is 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 a, a smooth glide path for for Brexit. And I don't think that really is anybody's base case. It's it's an awfully big assumption to make. And and I think that Politics really is going to be the big determining factor of of, uh, of price action in the UK rate space for the pound, and and realistically, the Bank of England can can talk. Uh, a good game, but I really don't think, to me, so far, it's not imminent that we're going to get any change in policy from them, beyond what they did yesterday on the macroprudential side with the Financial Policy Committee. Alison McCaig, sterling right now at $1.2937. Year-end medium forecast, one twenty-seven. from the analysts that Uh we survey. Higher or lower from here, is it easier just to say that lower from one twenty-nine thirty-seven through year-end, or is it a little bit more difficult now? Well, following on from what Mark Arney said and what's happened with the MPC and the the, the talk we've heard there, it does muddy the waters considerably. But the political risk, any good stories that might materialise that strengthen sterling from the back of Brexit negotiations or or politics are, quite frankly, merely a good story until another negative story materialises. And you've got to feel that that's going to be the the, the flow. I mean, the stat that you said that this is the, the best run we've seen in cable since November 2016, just makes you you more inclined to, uh, to to look at opportunities to to short it, um, and 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 or hedge yourself. I, I think that's the, the the mindset that's that's going to be the case here. Gents have loved having you on the program. I always do. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist uh, for Bloomberg from London. Alistair McCaig, director of investment management at Fernwealth, joining us from Zurich, or apparently Zurich, which is just outside of Zurich, I'm told, and I never make it there, but maybe I should. 
Should I? Lovely place. You definitely should. There we go. There's the promotion for Zook. Thank you very much, Alistair McKay. Thank you to Richard Jones as well. That wraps things up on the cable. Get to the pub, please, if you haven't already. If you're driving, don't do that. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. Of course we will. We'll bring you full coverage of the sea car results here in the United States and, of course, the action in the House of Commons. For the City of London, you've been listening to The Cable. You've been listening to Bloomberg Radio. We'll see you tomorrow. 